Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the Wednesday, the morning segment of the Wednesday, July 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great stuff to listen to over there, but definitely encourage you to get on over there and hunt, it, hunt up something to listen to. Um, probably more than one somethings. There's a lot of stuff over there. I want to continue to point you at the final link in our show notes it is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Gives In Go campaign. Uh, we are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can commence establishment of a Christian classic education based school. So go ahead and click on the link. There's a very, very solid, um, thorough description of what we're trying to do. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And we'd ask you to pass the link along so that others can do the same. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into our Bible reading today. Uh, we're going to open up this morning with our fourth day morning prayer. It's called True Christianity. Uh, let's pray. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, thou art almighty. In the dispensations of providence, all wise. In the gospel of grace, all love. And in thy son, thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible, uh, a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention, to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, zeal, confidence, but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit that profits by every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen. All right. And our morning devotion for July 26th. Uh, the text for it is from Second Peter 1, 5 and 6. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge, etc. If thou wouldst enjoy the eminent grace of the full assurance of faith under the blessed spirit's influence and assistance, do what the scripture tells thee. Give diligence. Take care that thy faith is of the right kind, that it is not a mere belief of doctrine, but a simple faith, depending on Christ and on Christ alone. Give diligent heed to thy courage. Plead with God that he would give thee the face of a lion, that thou mayest with a consciousness of right go on boldly. Study well the scriptures and get knowledge, for a knowledge of doctrine will tend very much to confirm faith. Try to understand God's word, let it dwell in thy heart richly. 
When thou hast done this, add to thy knowledge temperance. Take heed to thy body, be temperate without. Take heed to thy soul, be temperate within. Give temperance of lip, life, heart, and thought. Add to this, by God's Holy Spirit, patience. Ask him to give thee that patience which endureth affliction, which, when it is tried, shall come forth as gold. Array yourself with patience, that you may not murmur nor be depressed in your afflictions. When that grace is won, look to godliness. Godliness is something more than religion. Make God's glory your object in life. Live in his sight. Dwell close to him. Seek for fellowship with him, and thou hast godliness, and to that add brotherly love. Have a love to all the saints, and add to that a charity which openeth its arms to all men, and loves their souls. When you are adorned with these jewels, and just in proportion, as you practice these heavenly virtues, will you come to know by clearest evidence your calling and election. Give diligence, if you would get assurance for lukewarmness and doubting very naturally, go hand in hand. All right. So our reading for today is going to be Second Chronicles 17 and 18, Romans 9, 25 through the end of the chapter, Romans 10, verses 1 through 13, um, Psalm 20, Psalm 20, I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 20, all of Psalm 20, and Proverbs 20, verses 2 and 3. All right. Second Chronicles 17. Jehoshaphat, his son, then became king in his place and strengthened himself over Israel. And he put military forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had captured. And Yahweh was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of his father David, David's earlier days, and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, walked in his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So Yahweh established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought presents to Jehoshaphat. And he had great riches and honor, and his heart took great pride in the ways of Yahweh. And again he took away the high places and the Asherim from Judah. Then in the third year of his reign he sent his officials, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Jeho Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, the Levites, and with them Elishama and Jehoram, the priests. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of Yahweh with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now the dread of Yahweh was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Indeed, some of the Philistines brought presents and silver as their tax burden to Jehoshaphat. The Arabians also brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat grew greater and greater, and he built fortresses and store cities in Judah. And he had large supplies in the cities of Judah and men of war, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was their muster according to their father's households of Judah, commanders of thousands. Adna was the commander, and with him 300,000 mighty men of valor. And next to him was Johanan, the commander, and with him 280,000. And next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, who volunteered for Yahweh, and with him 200,000 mighty men of valor. And of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 equipped with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad, and with him 180,000 armed for military duty. 
These are they who attended on the king, apart from those whom the king put in the fortified cities through all Judah. Second Chronicles 18 Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. And some years later he went down to Ahab at Samaria. And Ahab sacrificed sheep and oxen in abundance for him, and the people who were with him, and incited him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. And Ahab king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and we will be with you in the battle. Moreover Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of Yahweh. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets, four hundred men, and said to them, Shall we go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh here, that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him, because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten to bring Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, clothed in their royal garments, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says Yahweh, with these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were also prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and succeed, and Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Now the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets, as if from one mouth, are good to the king. So please let your words be like your word be like one of them, and speak that which is good. But Micaiah said, As Yahweh lives, what my God says, that I shall speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he said, Go up and succeed, and they will be given into your hand. Then the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not say to you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab king of Israel, so that he will go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You shall entice him and also prevail. Go out and do so. So now behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. But Yahweh has spoken calamity against you. Then Zedekiah the son of Jenana approached and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of Yahweh pass from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you will see on that day when you enter and in her room to hide. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, Yahweh has not spoken by me. 
And he said, Listen, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your garments. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the commanders of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. Now it happened that when the commanders of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel, and they turned to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and Yahweh helped him, and God incited them away from him. So it happened that when the commanders of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. Now the battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until the evening, and at sunset he died. All right, Romans 9, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it has set where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the land thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness lay hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. Romans 10 verses 1 through 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I, satisf for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Psalm 20. For the choir director, a psalm of David. May Yahweh answer you in the day of distress. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and uphold you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. Selah. 
may grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Yahweh. May the king answer us in the day we call. And finally, Proverbs 20, verses 2 and 3. The terror of a king is like the roar of a lion. He who provokes him to anger sins against his own soul. It is a glory for a man to cease quarreling, but any ignorant fool will break out in dispute. All right. Well, that is our reading for the day. I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you that and all you do that you do that you do it to glorify God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. The prayer we're going to use from Valley of Vision is called Voyage. Let's pray. O Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbor with flying pennants, hull unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I ask great things, expect great things, shall receive great things. I venture on thee wholly, fully, my wind, sunshine, anchor, defense. The voyage is long, the waves high, the storms pitiless, but my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage, thy grace wafts me onward, my haven is guaranteed. This day will bring me nearer home. Grant me holy consistency in every transaction, my peace flowing as a running tide, my righteousness as every chasing wave. Help me to live circumspectly, with skill to convert every care into prayer. Halo my path with gentleness and love, smooth every asperity of temper. Let me not forget how easy it is to occasion grief. May I strive to bind up every wound and pour oil on all troubled waters. May the world this day be happier and better because I live. Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross, and every oncoming wave the fountain in his side. Help me, protect me in the moving sea, until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. All right, again, that is it for our morning segment. I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a great day. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Wednesday, July 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host, and we're going to dive, we're going to continue our our dig into uh, John chapter 10. We'll be working along in our Bible study. Um, But with all that being said, why don't we go ahead and just dive right in? Um, We're going to go ahead and open up with prayer from Valley Vision. This one is called Deliverance. Let's pray. O God of unsearchable greatness, before thee I am nothing but vanity, iniquity, perishing. Sin has forfeited thy favor, stripped me of thy image, banished me from thy presence, exposed me to the curse of of thy law. I cannot deliver myself and am in despair, but a resource is found in thee. For without my desert or desire, thou didst devise an everlasting plan, 
honorable to thy perfections, and which angels desired to look into. And the word which announces all the glory of this goodness is nigh me, invites me, beseeches me. May I, a convinced and self-despairing sinner, find Jesus as the power unto salvation, his death the center of all relief, the source of all gospel blessings. Help me to repair to that cross, be crucified to the world by it, and in it find deepest humiliation, motives to patience and self-denial, grace for active benevolence, faith to grasp eternal life, hope to lift up my head, love to bind me forever, to him who died and rose for me. May his shed blood make me more thankful for thy mercies, more humble under thy corrections, more zealous in thy service, more watchful against temptation, more contented in my circumstances, more useful to others. Amen. All right, and now our evening uh, devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for July 26th. Uh, the text for it is from Psalm 113.8, that he may set him with princes. Our spiritual privileges are of the highest order. Among princes is the place of select society. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Speak of select society. There is none like this. We are a chosen generation, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. We are come unto the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The saints have courtly audience. Princes have admitted admittance to royalty, when common people must stand afar off. The child of God has free access to the inner courts of heaven, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Let us come boldly, says the apostle, to the throne of the heavenly grace. Among princes there is abundant wealth, but what is the abundance of princes compared with the riches of believers? For all things are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Princes have peculiar power. A prince of heaven's empire has great influence. He wields a scepter in his own domain. He sits upon Jesus' throne. For he hath made us kings and priests unto God, and we shall reign forever and ever. We reign over the united kingdom of time and eternity. Princes again have special honor. We may look down upon all earth-born dignity from the eminence upon which grace has placed us. For what is human grandeur to this? He hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We share the honor of Christ, and compared with this, earthly splendors are not worth a thought. Communion with Jesus is a richer gem than ever glittered in imperial diadem. Union with the Lord is a coronet of beauty, outshining all the blaze of imperial palm. All right, well, like I said, we're going to continue on in our study of John chapter 10. And um, we'll be shifting sections. We've completed the section about the Good Shepherd. And we're going to be moving into a section about the claims of Christ. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to focus on the first three verses of this. This is verses 23 through, 22 through 24 in John chapter 10. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this. And I'm not going to read this whole section because it's basically John 10, 22 through the end of the chapter. So, John 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, 
tell us openly. So again, like I said, we, you know, we've come through all that about the man born blind and the Pharisees continuing to, you know, to argue with him and, you know, basically make, make clear that they, they have absolutely no belief that he, um, what am I trying to say? That, that he is from God. I mean, as it becomes clear, I mean, that the man born blind makes the clear argument from fact that makes clear that this is, this is a man from God, whether he's the Messiah or not. Now, of course, the man born blind by the end of chapter nine comes to believe that he is the Messiah and he worships him as we talked about. So again, we get, we got here into, into chapter 10 and we looked at this second, this first section, first 20 verses about the good shepherd. And again, this is kind of the end of the feast of booths. This is the end of the feast of booths thing that actually started back in John chapter seven, if I remember right. So John five through six was Jesus at the previous Passover. Then John seven, eight, nine, and here at the beginning of 10 is the feast of booths, which is six months after and six months before the final Passover where Jesus is crucified. So passion week. So what is happening here in our verses today are the last recordings in John of Jesus public ministry. Okay. So, and again, when we looked at the good shepherd, we saw that the good shepherd, um, that Jesus was the true shepherd of the sheep and that he's the only door to the fold. We saw that the good shepherd dies for his sheep. We saw that he loves his sheep and unites his sheep. And we saw that he had a ministry marked by compliance to the father and by controversy in a fallen world. And that, and that's the thing. And I think I made clear last evening that, that if our ministry is not controversial, not, not again. And I, and I actually said this in our Sunday school class on Sunday, we're not to be, be out there mean spirited. I mean, and I'm not, please understand. I'm not pushing the whole nuance thing and the, and the, and the, the being nice. That's not what I'm talking about. We've got to bring the truth, but we bring the truth in love. But at the same time, the message of the gospel is divisive. And if there's no controversy from our ministry, then I'm not sure what we're bringing is the gospel. Um, we even saw that. I'm sorry, during COVID and everything else. Um, and like I, I told you last night, you know, we'd actually seen the, the essential church, the movie. And basically, um, I think it was Tim Stevens. I think that's his last name. I have, I read it earlier and I've forgotten it already, but he and James Coates and John MacArthur, all they were trying to do was what God had told them to do, had called them to do, to feed his sheep, to teach the people of God and take care of them and pastor them. That's all they were trying to do, but it was controversial enough that, that, that the two in Canada got jailed and fines were levied left and right, um, to the point that now, honestly, <laughs> funnily enough, now that the ones in California have, the, the lawsuits have completely crashed, um, the, um, Grace Community Church has, um, lawsuits out there against LA County. And, uh, it looks like they're going to win. Actually, I think they did win and they're having to, and the LA County's having to pay out damages so uh, you know that's what happens but uh, again there's going to be controversy by our ministry if our ministry is true 
Not that we're running around trying to be controversial, but that our message, not that we're controversial, but the message is. So again, so, and as we've seen from John 5 till here we are in John 10, I've talked to you about the confrontation, the con- constant confrontationalism of the Pharisees, of the, of the Jewish leadership, of the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, um, of, of, of them with Jesus. And no matter what he's done, They've, they've, he's repeatedly showed himself through multiple means to clearly be from God and to honestly, truly be the son of God, to be the Messiah, be the Christ. And they've just not been willing to accept it. So what we're getting into here, here, this last sec section of John 10 from verse 22 through the end of the chapter, uh, John MacArthur, and as I've told you before, I use, um, the, the, headings and subheadings and stuff out of his commentary because it makes it easier for me to break this down and do this um we see a section here called that he termed and i agree with him because this is fit everything else but it definitely is clear here um that is called rejecting the claims of christ and we we see them very clearly believe me you're going to see it very very clearly on the over the next couple of days god willing next couple of nights god willing and in the next week how how much the religious leadership is going to reject the claims of Christ. So our first section today is what you, what MacArthur would call the confrontation. And I, I think it nails it. You see the confront, the clear confrontation in verse 24, but we've got some setup we need to do. So let me go ahead and read it again. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. So let's just look at verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. So again, so this is another feast. Okay, we've, we've talked about, like I said, chapters 5 and 6 were previous, were, were, were um, what was I trying to say? Passover, sorry, was a Passover. Passover. And then seven, eight, nine, and beginning of 10, our Feast of Booths, which would have been six months later. Now, six months from there is going to be the final Passover where, where Jesus is crucified, that, that, that final pa- Passover. But here is a feast happening in between. Now, again, this is not one of the major three. Again, the major three are, are the Passover, um, and it's got another name, and I just went blank on it, so I apologize. Um, but the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks. Okay, so this is something else. This is called the Feast of the Dedication. It typically takes place approximately two months after the occurrences that we've seen around the Feast of Booths here. Um, ver- uh, John chapter 7 through the verse 21 in chapter 10. So you're, you're basically seeing a two month jump from verse 21 to verse 22. Okay, so be aware of that. So. This feast of the dedication that he speaks of, it's now called Hanukkah. Okay, this is Hanukkah they're speaking of. It was not called that then. It was called the feast of dedication, but it is Hanukkah. This occurs on the on the twenty fifth. At least at that time, it happened on the twenty fifth of Chislev, the month of Chislev, which actually overlapped November December. It, it was part of November, part of December was the month of Chislev, and it happened on the twenty fifth of that day was that feast of the dedication. Um, and it was, it was instantiated. It was, it was put into place. Sorry. My wife hates it when I use that word. It was put into place 
to commemorate the Israelites' victory over Antiochus Epiphanes. So, um, I want to say it's Matthias, um, Matthias Maccabee, um, and his sons, um, and I think they were priests or Levites, one or the other, um, tended to lead. So, so the Greeks, um, had moved in, had moved in and, and had been colonizing into Palestine. And, um, they very much did what was called, um, Hellenization, um, basically trying to convert everybody to Greek. Now that honestly, so honestly, I keep saying, honestly, I apologize for that. Um, it's something that bugs me, but which we end up with where we're in first century Palestine. Notice the new Testament is written in Greek. It's written in Greek because of this Hellenization, actually a lot of the area around throughout Asia and all of that Asia minor and all of that. Um, and even down into Africa was written in Greek because of this Hellenization. Okay. But the problem is, but what you eventually got is eventually you got a Greek ruler and Antiochus Epiphanes who was very, very authoritarian, um, very much dropped the hammer on the Jewish people. Um, you were not allowed to worship as a Jew. You weren't allowed to own the old Testament at that point, um, because you got to realize this is during the intertestamental periods. So this is between Malachi, the end of Malachi and Matthew, about 400 year period there where God has been, where God was silent. And I've talked about that before. God was silent until John the Baptist, but that's 400 years there. So everything in the old Testament has been written. And so they had this in scrolls. They had the law and the prophets. They had all of that. You were not allowed to own it. Um, you could be punished up through death if you owned it, um, and it would be taken and destroyed. Um, and this came to the point, and this is where you start seeing in Matthew 24, speaking of um, the uh, abomination of desolation, uh, when they speak of it. And of course, they're speaking of it prophetically in the future, but it also refers back to what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He came in to the temple, Solomon's temple. He came into the temple and he sacrificed pigs, or at least one pig, on the altar there. Um, and then he tore down stuff. He just, I mean, I mean, he just demolished any and everything that was sacred to the Jews. So, um, like I said, and I think the, the, the father's name is Matthias Maccabees, leads, Maccabeus leads, the, he and his family lead the Israelites in revolt and they eventually end up winning. It's over a couple of years. And what I have here, so actually, um, Judas Maccabeus, um, one of his sons was the one who truly led, um, the final part of the rebellion and led into the true, led to the true defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the Greek, um, king. So I'm going to read to you something. This is this is actually, and this comes out of MacArthur's commentary, but he was quoting from one of those intertestamental books. And I know some people have issues with it. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not reading this as if it has the, the authority of scripture that it is God breathed or anything like that. That's not what I'm indicating. This is a historical book that recorded something that historically happened between the end of the book of Malachi, the end of the prophets, and the beginning of the new Testament of John the Baptist. Okay. So this is from second Maccabees 10. These are the apocrypha out of the apocrypha 
Second Maccabees 10 verses 1 through 8. Okay, so let me read it to you. Now Maccabeus and his followers, so speaking of Judas Maccabeus there, now Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city, and they tore down the altars which had been built in the public square by the foreigners, and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years, and they burned incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of the presence. And when they had done this, they fell prostrate and besought the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place, that is, on the twenty-fifth day of the same month, which was Chislev. And they celebrated it for eight days, with rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Booths, remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, bearing ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches, and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public ordinance and vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. Okay, so that's the establishment here of this of this feast of dedication. Again, the triumph of the Israelites led led by Judas Maccabeus over Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek king. So, this is the time during this celebration that this last verse verse uh, John ten verse twenty two through forty two happens. Okay, so I just want to give you some background that this is what he's talking about, the Feast of Dedication. So it's kind of important, okay, kind of important to them um, that this is. And so, but but again, this is the last recording, recording in John of Jesus's public ministry. Everything that happens after this in John is in his final week and is, is directed at his apostles. He's, he's training the 12. He's preparing the 12 for him to be gone. So verse 23 it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Now, like I said, this is in the, the feast of dedication was on the 25th of Chislev, which was kind of part November, part of December of what's our calendar. So of course that was winter and in Jerusalem or well in Israel, that time is the rainy season. So the portico. So it talks about him being walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Well, a portico is a covered columned walkway. And in this case, this portico, the portico of Solomon was on the east side of the temple. So it was a covered columned walkway there. So of course, in the rainy season, where else would you walk? But in, in under the cover where one, the ground's not as much, not going to be as muddy and, and whatever. And you're going to be a little bit out of the weather weather. So that's where he's walking there. Um, but some also think of, because you notice John is very clear about it. It was winter. You don't, I haven't seen that that much in the gospel of John when he specifies a season. So some, some commentators think, and, and, and I don't think they're necessarily wrong. I just, I don't have any more information than the, this statement right here. It was winter, but some consider that John's reference to winter as being a reference to Israel's spiritual coldness, their spiritual blindness at this point. Again, 
here are these Pharisees. So, that, so, so let me remind you about the Pharisees. The Jewish people in the intertestamental period, it became very, very clear. One, God wasn't talking to them, but it became very, very clear that, that there was no real piety. And if you understand what I'm talking about there, there was no real living day to day as God had commanded. There was no true piety. And the Pharisees felt like, and of course the Pharisees come out of the common folk, but felt like there's got to be some effort made to do this. So the Pharisees became experts, became experts on the word of God and on the prophets and on how, how they should walk, how they should behave, how they should act as, as Israelites, as Jews, as Hebrews, as the children of God, how they should behave. And so they became the authorities on that. And so they had striven to bring all of Israel to that point. But by the time of this, of Jesus here, you know, in, in his third year of minister of public ministry, because that's where we're at, they're, they're just, they're not responsive. These same people, these same leaders that are supposed to be experts on the word of God will either cannot or will not recognize that this Jesus person walking around is at least from God, directly from God, and at most the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. And he meets all the prophecies that, that, that it should be almost like he's got a giant neon sign over his head with arrows pointing down at him going, this is the Christ, <laughs> you know? Um, but they're co spiritually cold. They're spiritually blind. Like we talked about back at the, um, at the end of chapter nine, we talked about spiritual sight or spiritual blindness. You know, and and that that and that the man who had been born blind was brought to a point of truly being granted spiritual sight. But how clear Jesus made it then there that those who thought they already had it would be made blind, and that their sin would remain. Remember that was like almost the last phrase in there that their sin would remain because they claimed that they had spiritual sight. Obviously they didn't. So, so that's a, that is a thought as well that John specifically mentions it being winter, not only because it is technically winter, that's a valid statement of fact, but that it's also spiritually winter for Israel at this point, that their Messiah has come and they've rejected him and they continue to reject him. And, and believe me, we talk about, you know, the, the religious leaders and all of that, but believe me, he was getting as much, re I'm sure he was getting as much rejection from the average Israelite as he was from their leadership. So we get to verse 24 and here's the true confrontation. This is kind of the key of, of what our verses are today. So verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. So when you first read that, it doesn't sound like a big deal. And you go, confrontation? Except let me be clear with you. The Jews then gathered around him. The then gathered around him. The, the Greek there is to surround or to encircle. And this is not, and, and the, 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 um, the inference here is in a hostile manner. Okay. It's in a hostile manner. This is not just a, hey, can we ask you a question? But, uh, hey, we got something to say. We got something to ask you. And then they go on to ask, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. Basically, they're saying, are you the Christ? Well, they're asking the right question, but they're not asking it for the right reason. Don't, don't misunderstand that. They're looking for a way to convict Jesus, to persecute him, not to laud him as Messiah. They want to imprison him. He has shown them, and, I, and, I've, and I've said this to you multiple times through our working through John. He has shown them repeatedly, starting in chapter 5, actually before that, but specifically in chapter 5 when engaging with them, he has presented to them more than enough evidence that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. He has presented to them more than enough. They are not truly here looking for him to confirm that other than the fact that they want him to confirm it so that they can call blasphemy and throw him in jail. That's the only thing they're looking for. So again, right question, but their motives are ugly. They've hardened their hearts. Again, they're looking for a way to convict Jesus. That's all they're looking for. They, they, they are not truly looking for the Messiah promised them. That's not what they're looking for. All they care about is themselves. All they care about is their own power, their own money, um, their own accolades, their own honor. And he's a problem. He is a problem for them. So all they're looking for is a way to get rid of him. That's what they're looking for. And that's the confrontation here. They're rejecting the claims of Christ. And we'll see, especially as we get into tomorrow and get into it tomorrow. Um, so we've talked about the confrontation here, our verses tomorrow, which I think is verse 25 through 31, I think. Yeah, 25 through 31. We're going to look at the claims of Christ. Christ is going to respond and we're going to see the claims, but then we're going to go on and see how they respond to him. And uh, it's pretty ugly. <laughs> it's pretty ugly. I mean, they continue to show that rejection of Christ. And that's the thing. We, we got to look at it. How easy it is, is it? How easy is it for us in this world and as crazy as it is at times because of the stress and everything else for us to reject Christ, for us to reject the claims of Christ. And I'm not trying to just grab that out of the blue to make an application. The fact is it, it, it is way too easy for you and I in this world, especially as persecution of those who hold to a Christian worldview ramps up and gets worse and worse, even here for us to reject the claims of Christ. And we, when we do that by putting aside the gospel, by walking like the world and behaving like the world, we are rejecting the claims of Christ. We are rejecting the fact that he is Lord and savior of our life. We're rejecting the fact that he sacrificed himself on the cross for you and me who were completely and always will be completely unworthy of it. So we've seen the confrontation and tomorrow night, God willing, we'll see the claims of Christ. All right, that's going to do it. Let's go ahead and close out in prayer. We're going to close out with the fourth day evening prayer. God all sufficient. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perf perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine. The world is thine in its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee. 
are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace! How excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee! Teach us to place our happiness in thee, and blessed God, never... I'm sorry. Teach us to place our happiness in thee, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth, or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. Thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity thou hast provided us a Savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions. Have mercy on us. We are weary. Give us rest. Ignorant, make us wise into salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on, unchecked, undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name. Amen. All right. Well, I, I hope this has been edifying, this getting into this next section about rejecting the claims of Christ. And like I said, this last part of the public ministry of Christ uh, before we head into that last week. And and, it, and it, I don't even know if it goes right into the last week, but it's all going to now be focused on the 12 and preparing them for his departure. So I hope you'll be around tomorrow night. I hope this has helped to get us started and set a good context. And I pray that you'll be with us tomorrow where we'll continue on, God willing, looking at the claims made by Christ in this section on rejecting the claims of Christ. I hope you have a wonderful night and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good one. God bless.